Good morning, Lake Forest. So good to be together on this chilly March morning. My name is Holly Worsley. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, I am one of the elders here at Lake Forest, and it's my joy to bring the message this morning. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. Father God, we thank you for a new morning. We thank you for this time as we move towards Easter, um, not just on the calendar, but in our hearts. Time to be together, time to say, perhaps, um, Jesus, who are you really? Who are you in my life? Time, perhaps, to say, Lord, where am I tangled up? Where is my heart tangled up? Where am I um, stuck in my life? Where have things crept into my life that aren't, that aren't of you, that I don't want to be there? Lord, this morning, as we look at the story um, of you walking on the earth among us, and how you interacted with people, and how you taught, and what your words were. As we look at that word this morning, would you move in each of our hearts and minds individually and show us our own hearts? We ask and pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my husband, Bill, that was just doing announcements. By the way, I was a little hurt, Bill, that you didn't ask me to be on your basketball team. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later. Okay. Um, <laughs> my husband, Bill, when he finished at Chapel Hill, um, you know, got the degree and he went on to make his parents proud. He went up to Nantucket to become a tour bus driver. They were like, that was money well spent. Okay. And he did. He got a lot of tips though, because he was a Southern boy in Nantucket doing tours of which he made up half of the tour. Anyway, he was in uh, Nantucket and, and years later when we got married, he said, Hey, I really want to take you to Nantucket. My sister was in, um, getting a master's in Boston, and so we went to see her, and we went over to Nantucket just to see it. And there is a fascinating history there, and it's about a volunteer organization that sprung up on the island. If you can picture it, Massachusetts kind of has that boot that comes out, and Nantucket's the little island right underneath it. And the thing about this island is that it's an incredibly rocky shore, and storms come up really, really suddenly. Even experienced sailors are caught off guard by these sudden strong currents and, and the quick fog that comes in. And to date, there have been 700 recorded shipwrecks within a mile off the coast of Nantucket. As a matter of fact, they call it the graveyard of the Atlantic. And so as a result of seeing all this pain and all this brokenness literally right off their shore, these fishermen, now these are just people, right? They're just like you and I. They're, they're living in Nantucket and they're seeing this, this shipwreck, this life loss right off their own shore. And they say, we got to do something about it. And so they formed together a volunteer organization that they called the Humane Society. And they built little huts along the beach and they divided up, they took turns, and someone or several people were always watching. They were the watchmen watching the water for a shipwreck. And if indeed a shipwreck came, the word would go out, and all of these ordinary people would jump in their fishing boats. And this wasn't about wealth or reputation or status. This was about the value of human life. And these ordinary people would go out into the Atlantic to rescue people, risk their own lives for people they'd never met. 
This was their motto. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Now, I'm not sure how they got volunteers with that motto, but they had hundreds of them, hundreds of volunteers. Here's what's fascinating. It became so well known that they were, in fact, rescuing hundreds of people that the Coast Guard heard about it. And the Coast Guard came in and said, hey, let us help. We're going to come alongside you. And the Coast Guard and the volunteers, the Humane Society, were rescuing people for a while. And they did it, you know, arm in arm and side by side. And, and then slowly but surely, the people, the ordinary people were like, you know what? I'll just let the professionals do it. I mean, they're better trained. I mean, they're getting paid after all. We're not even getting paid. And so they stopped manning the little huts and they stopped looking for people that were drowning, and they went out of the life-rescuing business. But a strange thing happened. They couldn't get themselves to completely disband because they were such a unit, right? And so they actually today still get together, but now they just have dinner parties, <laughs> and they just enjoy each other's company. You know, the church is supposed to be in Jesus' mind and his, and his plan and God's design. It's supposed to be a bunch of people that are flawed, that are struggling, that, that have things that are tripping up their hearts and their minds and their lives, but their lives have been changed by God. And so they look around at their little circle of people in, in where God has put them. In their little circle of people, and they go, who is experiencing a shipwreck today? I was thinking about this in my life. This is just my little circle. I have a friend that's dying of a terminal illness very slowly. I have someone dear to me that this last week was diagnosed with cancer for the third time. I have a friend that's a whole house full of young kids, and, and she's overwhelmed and, and, and a little depressed, actually. I have another couple that have for 12 years been trying to have a child. They're suffering under infertility and so longing to have a child. I have a college friend on Davidson's campus who is studying and achieving and is desperately lonely in a sea of people. I have a dear, dear friend, a mom, who has one son who doesn't know yet that he's an addict, won't call it what it is, and probably isn't going to graduate from high school. Friends, we have people in our lives, in our little circle, that are having many shipwrecks right now, every day. And every word that we speak has the power either to give a little life or to destroy a little bit of spirit and vitality. And right now we're in a season called Lent. And all Lent is is 40 days leading up to Easter. 40 days leading up to when the God of the universe died on a cross in our place, was crucified, dead, and buried, but rose again. 40 days leading up where we get to examine our hearts and we get to say things like, Lord, what is snuck into my heart that is not of you? Show me now. And traditionally, the church has said that those things that sneak into our lives, they fall into two categories. One is the sin, one category is the sins of the flesh. So lust, greed, gluttony. 
But the other is sneakier. It's the sins of the Spirit. And that gets at our soul. And those sins of the Spirit are things like pride and arrogance and judgmentalism and self-righteousness. And you know what's striking is that the Gospels, that's the stories of Jesus, right, in the Bible. They have all these stories that have a triad. You ready for it? Jesus is one person. There's a person in the story that is really struggling with the sins of the flesh. And then there's someone that's secretly judging them pridefully, righteously in their heart. Like the woman one day that was dragged out of an inappropriate relationship and literally thrown in the dust in the midst of a group of men. And Jesus is there. And the men quite literally physically pick up a rock because by law they had every right to stone her because all they can see, they are so crippled by their pride and their self-righteousness because they've never done that. They're so crippled that they've managed to stay free of a fleshly sin that they can't even see their soul withering under their pride and they pick up the rock. And they're like, Jesus, if you knew who she was. But Jesus is more worried about their hearts in the story. There's another man, there's a triad, there's Jesus, and there's this tax collector. And basically, he's a guy who has spent his whole life, just his heart is just withering under the love of money. I mean, he's just, he's just stuck in it, y'all. That's all he can think about. That's all he wants. He's obsessed with it. But he knows he's dying inside. And so he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. And, and the Pharisees see Jesus say, hey, why don't we have dinner together? Guy who's come to me honestly, who's withering under your own brokenness. And they say, man, if you knew who he was, you can't have dinner with him. Because their hearts are so locked down in pride. They're like, you can't be with someone like that. They missed the shipwreck. They missed it. In the passage that Jack and Britt read for us this morning, I think we see a story about a man who's confused. He's trying to figure out who Jesus is, authentically trying to figure out. But he does, in fact, push past a lot of pride that could have been there to try to figure out who this Jesus is. The story starts in the, in the uh, city of Jerusalem. Because a yearly festival, the Passover festival is happening. It's a time of enormous celebration and thanksgiving and remembering and asking for forgiveness. And this one little town just swells to tens of thousands of people at this festival. And Jesus is there. And he looks around at the crowd. See, we see crowds, but Jesus doesn't see crowds. He sees individual hearts and individual lives. And he looks around and he starts seeing shipwrecks. And so he heals people physically. And he heals people emotionally. And he heals people spiritually. And this is what the scripture says. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs, the miracles he was performing, and they believed in his name. They believed in his name because of the miracles. And so right after that, the next verse said, but Jesus would not entrust himself, himself to them because he knew what was in each person. Now, not all of them, but some of them, Jesus looked around and he's thinking, you love me right now for what I can do for you. 
I want you to love me for what I can do in you. So in the midst of this story, Nicodemus comes. He's seeking Jesus. The scripture says really carefully, this is really important. He says, at night. Why add that? Why say at night? Well, you know, people are not sure. Some people think that the, the town was so overrun with people that Nicodemus so wanted to talk to Jesus that he came at night because that was when he could get him alone and really talk to him. Or maybe it was because he'd been watching him all day and he was so earnest to, to talk to him, to be with him, that he went at night, like right now. Or maybe, see, some people loved Jesus. Other people wanted to kill him. And a lot of Nicodemus' friends wanted to kill him. So maybe he so wanted to know who this Jesus was, but he was afraid for people to know that. So he went undercover. He went under darkness. Because the thing about, that we know about Nicodemus, whether he was earnest or, it, or whether he was hiding, is this, he was compelled. Y'all, he was compelled. His heart had been captured by something about Jesus, and he was compelled to figure out who is Jesus for me. Nicodemus hadn't even asked a question yet. He simply comes in and makes a statement to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For nobody could perform these signs, these miracles you're doing, if God were not with him. So he doesn't ask a, he doesn't ask a question. He says, I'm confused because I sense that you really are from God. I see how you teach. I've never heard anybody talk about God like that. I see how you stop for people and you see them and you interact with them. No teacher does that. I see that you'll tell the truth in power and in security, even when it will put you in danger. Who are you? In the midst of a crowd of people that Jesus said he wouldn't trust his heart to, he sees a genuineness in Nicodemus, and he tells him a beautiful, beautiful truth of God. Listen to this. He says, very truly, Nicodemus. In other words, don't miss this. I tell you, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God, unless they're born again. Nicodemus is totally mystified, totally baffled. He knows the Old Testament law. He teaches it. And so he looks at Jesus and he said, how, how could someone be born again? It's not like I can go in my mother's womb and, and suddenly be born again. And Jesus says it again. He's ve he says, very truly, Nicodemus. In other words, don't miss this, Nicodemus because I see you searching. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying that you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says again, how can this be? He's like, how can I have missed this? You're a teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? 
I believe that Nicodemus was really mystified. I can't see the kingdom of God. I can't enter the kingdom of God unless I'm born again. And and I want to just be honest with you about this. This born again, this is something that is a beautiful truth of God that the culture has ripped out of context and in my mind robbed of its beauty. When I was in my 20s, I was Nicodemus. I'd been in church my whole life, but I started to sense there was something about Jesus that I'd never understood something I needed, something that would heal places in me that I'd never thought could be healed. And if somebody had said, born again to me, I would have thought, and this is in my 20s, I was judgmental and lost and broken. And this is what I would have thought. If they would have said I was a born again Christian, I would have thought about a type of person. I would have thought about an emotional person. They're all a basket case. They got, they're weeping. They got mascara coming down their face. They're all like, you know, wailing and all that kind of stuff. I would have thought about a particular bottomed out kind of person, right? Like their, their life was circling the, j- the drain and they had one last chance. So they reached for religion. And they said like that, religion. Sorry, <laughs> just kind of came out. Um, I would have thought about a, a knee-jerk conservative, if I'm being honest. Somebody that's not engaging the culture. They're not engaging the world. They certainly don't have an intellect to their faith. They're rigid. They're legalistic. But y'all, the story of Nicodemus shatters that. It shatters it. The scriptures say that he was a part of the ruling Sanhedrin. That means he was a chief priest over all the priests in the synagogue. In other words, he was a leader of leaders. He would have been wealthy He had great status. He was a Jewish male of age and experience. He wasn't an emotional person. His life wasn't circling the drain. You say, oh, but he's a Pharisee. He's one of those legalistic kind of guys. Really? Because look how he approaches Jesus. He's compelled to come talk to Jesus. He's compelled to find out who Jesus is for him. When he sees him, here's Jesus who studied under no rabbi he knows. Nobody knows where he comes from. Nobody knows where he got the wisdom to say what he's saying. So he has no status in the rabbi community. And Nicodemus comes up to him, this wealthy leader of leader, and says, Rabbi, term of honor. And he genuinely wants to know. See this? term born again that the culture is ripped out of contents and I think just robbed of its beauty can also be translated born from above. Born from above. And I think maybe that's the best way to understand it, that God did this in me. God changed this in me. So what exactly is it then? Where does it come from? What, what does it really mean? Well, the Greeks had And you remember, this was a Roman and Greek culture, right? So the Greeks had this term in their society. This is what they believed. That all the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, looked around at their society, and they said, the world is getting worse and worse. I mean, all we have to do is, you know, look at the evening news, and we're like, we get discouraged, right? And they they said, the world is circling the drain. As time goes on, it's getting worse. And then they believed this. They had a technical term, literally a Greek term in their society, palingenesia. And this is what it meant, that the gods, all the Greek gods, once the world got to a really bad place, they would just end it. They would reset and it would start it over. 
But this wouldn't happen just one time. It would happen over and over and over. And their belief was that throughout time, there had been this cyclical downward spiral of the world. The gods hit reset, and it all started over again. And that would be endless. It would go on and on and on. So here's the beauty of the people that wrote the Bible that were speaking to these Greeks and Romans. Matthew, who wrote one of the Gospels, the stories of Jesus. Look at what he wrote. He said, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, those of you who have followed me, this is the twelve disciples, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That word renewal, Matthew took from those Greek people, it's palingenesia. The renewal. And so what Matthew is saying is, you're right. The world is getting worse and worse and worse. And, and at one time, not many times, one time, the one true God will come back. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to use his power to make right every evil, every injustice, every tear, every pain, every sickness. One time, palingenesia, renewal, regeneration. God will make it right. And then Jesus hints at this new birth, this renewal in his story. But look at how Paul spells it out, exactly what's happening in Titus 3. Paul, the apostle Paul, who was against Jesus, and Jesus interrupted his life and from above changed it. He wrote this later in his life. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal, palingenesia, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, having been made right by Jesus' grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So what is this birth from above? What is this new birth? It is, ready, the power that Jesus will use in the end time to make all of creation and all of the world and all of evil and injustice and pain and suffering right. It's that power come into your life in the present. Same power. The new birth is the power that God is going to use to regenerate the world, brought into your present. Not perfectly, not completely this side of heaven, but it's a renewing power. It's a power within you that is changing you and remaking you and drawing you to the Father and making you more like him the longer you walk with him. I have a dear friend named Sam Cornwell, Talked to him yesterday. He's in his 80s. Here's Sam's story. We all went to church together. Me, Sam, Bill, Jenny, TJ. We were all in church together in our 20s. Sam was there. And, and Sam was baptized on his 11th birthday. And then he went to Presbyterian College and he took four years of Bible. And he said, I got A's because I memorized good. And then he joined the church. And he became an insurance salesman, and he was very, very successful in Charlotte. And so he became an elder at the church. 
and he was teaching Sunday school at the church. And, and one night they were having a lay renewal. And, and that's when people come and they just tell stories about, here's how God above changed my life today. And Sam said he went, you know, I went because I was an elder. I mean, I had to be there and everything. And my wife and I are sitting in the row and, and they're telling their stories. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I thought, I don't know Jesus. So he went to a house afterwards and he's sitting kind of pulled back, you know, and somebody looked at him and said, Sam, you don't look good. Can we pray for you? He said, yeah. So they led him in just like a humble prayer, right? So this, this guy's a leader of leaders. He's got everything going. And he laid that pride aside and he said, God, I have actually never known you personally. Will you forgive me? I want you to lead my life. I, I want you to come into my life and really lead it. He said he went home that night and he picked up the Bible, right? And, and he'd been teaching from the book of John. And in the book of John is the, is the story of Nicodemus. And then a little farther down, there's, there's a story about that Jesus tells about the vine and the branches. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You need to be connected to the vine. And then he says this, as a matter of fact, you can do nothing apart from me. Sam said, I'd read that verse many, many times. And for the first time, I was like, Oh, so he started to learn about Jesus. He sat under older men, and he learned about Jesus. And then at 51 years old, he became a young life leader. And he walked into my old high school, and he saw a dude there, and he started talking to him. Here's a group of some of the guys. See that handsome guy on the right right there? That's one of your elders named T.J. Haycox. His hair is a little grayer. Sorry, Teach. 51 years old. Took a group of guys three years in a row out to Colorado to a Young Life camp. He did this with 20 guys. He said, I try to call them once a month, Holly. Once every few months. I try to keep up with them. Sam's in a retirement home now with his wife, Olive. He said to me yesterday, I'm not doing young life anymore. I'm doing old life. <laughs> I'm doing old life. I said, yes, you are, brother. Yes, you are. Friends, there's no template for this, for how God comes into a life. I mean, sometimes it is sudden. It's, it's just like a, oh, I've never seen that before. But oftentimes it's like a light coming on stronger and stronger where someone will just say, you know, I've always knew, known intellectually that God loved me, but I'm starting to, I'm starting to experience that. Something's happening. I, I'm seeing things in Scripture that I've always seen, but now they mean something. It's like a, a light is coming on slowly, brighter and brighter. There's no template for how God enters into a life, but there is a common thread, and this is what it is. Ready? When God comes into your life, the loves of your heart will be reordered. They will. Your mind will begin to be reordered. How you think, what matters to you, what you see, what you literally see in the world and in Scripture. 
your heart will be reordered. God will begin to bend your heart for the things of God. They will float to the top as most important. He will bend your heart to the things of God, and you will suddenly have a heart for things that you never thought you would care about. Because from above, God's power is changing and reordering that in your life, and your identity will be different. You will know yourself as a daughter of the king or a son of the king. Your identity will literally be different. The one common thread is that you will see life change. And that's what happened in Nicodemus. I mean, it doesn't say in the scriptures for sure that he came to know the Lord. But I tell you, he was searching authentically. Because not too long after that night, he talked to Jesus. Pharisees were all together. And I told you, some of them loved Jesus and some of them quite literally wanted to kill him, which in fact they did on the cross. And Nicodemus was one of them. He was a leader of leaders, right? And the Pharisees are like, we should go get him. There's an angry mob that wants to tear him apart. And Nicodemus, remember, honored, wealthy, wise, older man, stands up and he says, do we now condemn people without hearing what they have to say? And then Jesus is crucified on the cross. The Romans think it's done. They think they've won. And two men go to ask for Jesus' body. Do you know the guts it took to go ask for his body? They just crucified him on a cross as a criminal. You go ask for his body, you're associating yourself with that criminal. You're putting yourself in danger. And those men were Joseph, who had a, a, a grave, a cave, that he wanted to bury Jesus in because he said he was a secret follower of Jesus, and, and Nicodemus. And Joseph and Nicodemus took Jesus' bloody-soaked body, and, and it says Nicodemus brought the herbs, the aloes, and he himself personally rubbed Jesus' body with the perfumes and the aloes. And then those two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, took strips of linen and they wrapped his body. And together, they carried his body and they laid it in a cave to bury him. Only women and slaves cleaned bodies that were dead and wrapped them. Here's a leader of leaders, an older wise man. And no matter where he was with Jesus at this point, there is a tenderness that has been born in him. Born from above. There's changed life. There's new life. Friends, I think as we march our way towards, not in the calendar towards Easter, in our hearts towards Easter, I think God would say, Holly, where has arrogance and pride? Where are, you, where are you looking around self-righteously at someone in your life? Where are those whispers in your heart that are tangling up your ability to love people well? To love people without judgment? To love people because you don't even know their story? Where, where is that pride tangling me up? And where do I need to lay that down and say, God, I, I want to live like a person 
that has been changed from above. Because I have. And will you give me the eyes to see the shipwrecks in my little circle? And will you give me the strength and the energy to want to risk my life, to want to lay down my life in rescue because you first rescued me? Let me pray for us. Father God, the truth is we all need to be rescued. There are just parts of all of us that need rescuing because they have wreckage. There are things that we hide that pride covers up, and and the truth is that they choke out our ability to love. Lord, would you, even right now, would you just bring to mind, Father, the ways that you have changed our lives, the places that you have touched each of our lives, made it different, made it more, made it healed. And Father, if there is someone like me when I was 20, if there's a Nicodemus here this morning that is saying, I'm, I don't know who I think Jesus is, but I'm compelled to understand who he might be. Oh, Father, would you move in his heart or her heart? And would you give him the courage to just say, Lord, I want to know you as leader in my life. I want to see the realness of the power of you in my life. Pray that simple prayer. Lord, help us to be more and more authentically clinging to you. Thank you for rescuing Thank you for coming for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.